0: morning family welcome this morning I invite you to grab your Bibles we're going to get right to work this morning open them to 1st John chapter 1 we are in week 3 of our new series on 1st John and we are still in the first four verses so we're going to read those first four verses together this morning the book of First John, it might be easier to go to the back of the book and turn to the left than it is to go from the front. It's really close to the end there. First John, I'm going to be reading chapter 1, verses 1 through 4 this morning. <clears throat> at the end of that reading, I will say that this is the word of the Lord and invite you at that time to respond in worship and say thanks be to God. so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things so that our joy may be complete. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Like I said, we are in week three of our series through 1 John. Uh, don't ask me how long we'll be here. I don't know. Um but three weeks and we're in the first four verses. So that gives you an indication of how this is going to go. Um, and uh, we did the first week, we really had kind of an overview and an introduction to the book. We talked about who the author is and, and that we accept it to be John the Apostle, who was one of the disciples of Jesus, the brother of James, the sons of Zebedee, uh, one of the inner circle of three. Uh, if you read through the gospel accounts, you find out, that literally hundreds and even thousands of people uh, followed Jesus throughout his ministry. A lot of times we think it was just the 12 guys that just followed him everywhere. It was really literally, uh, at times, hundreds and even thousands. Uh, Then you read places like John 6, where uh, Jesus tells these people after he's fed uh, 5,000 of them with loaves and fishes, he says, now you need to eat my flesh and drink my blood, and they freak out and they all run away. And, uh, and so there were times when it was just the 12, because all that was left literally were the 12 at that moment in time, and Jesus kind of turns to them. he's like, are you going to? And Peter's like, where will we go? Um, we can't, you know, like, we're all in, and, and then he says this beautiful thing, you alone uh, have the words which lead to eternal life. And uh, that's what we're talking about this morning, is eternal life. Uh, last week we looked at the very first phrase here in the first four verses which serves the introduction to John's uh, book here and we looked at that phrase that which was from the beginning and it was important for us to go there first because uh, if we're going to talk now today about eternal life we needed to understand that the one who was offering eternal life to us is himself eternal for the finite cannot offer that which is infinite. The, that which is temporary or temporal cannot offer that which is eternal. And so it's important for us to see John pointing to Christ and saying that which was from the beginning, or rather the emphasis really is in the original, that which was from before the beginning, meaning that which is eternal, the eternal word of God as we looked at in John's Gospel and, John chapter 1, verse 1, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, literally was God's own fellow. And so here we look at this, and we look here where it says, uh, John immediately begins to tell us why he's writing, and he says this life was made manifest, we have seen it, and now he gives us purpose, he says, and testify to it and proclaim to you the Eternal life. And so there is purpose with which John is writing to proclaim to his readers, to his hearers, to proclaim to them eternal life. And so today that's what we're going to be talking about. The Belgic Confession couldn't have been more apropos to what we're talking about this morning. It's perfect because here we are to talk about eternal life. Eternal life has been called the cardinal truth. ...of Christianity, the cardinal truth of the Christian message. Let me ask you a question, Christian. When was the last time you talked about eternal life? I I confessed to you last week that even in my own studies... uh, ...it was easy for me to jump over that first phrase... ...that which was from the beginning, and also this phrase... And proclaim to you the eternal life. It was easy to go, oh yeah, of course, yeah, duh, that's, that's why John is right, yeah, yeah, of course. And I was convicted in that quickness to jump over that phrase. I begin to even think about that, like when, when's the last time with my brothers and sisters in Christ? Because I've been with a lot of you. We've sat down around the table and shared meals together and Good food and good drink. When was the last time that we talked about the eternal life that is ours in Jesus Christ? We often talk about Jesus and Him saving us from sin. Yes, praise God. Don't stop. Don't stop talking about that. But when was the last time that we talked about this, what has been called cardinal truth of the Christian message? That what is given to us in the forgiveness of our sin and the redemption of our bodies is eternal life. What's funny is, I can't remember the last time that I had a conversation with somebody about eternal life, but the rest of the world can't stop thinking about living forever. How many lives lost, how much blood spilt over the millennia of people searching for something, anything, that would give them or grant them eternal life. Whether it is the crusaders looking for the Holy Grail or the conquistadors searching for the fountain of youth And the irony in both of those things is that both of those groups of people were supposed to have had the Christian message and the truth of eternal life. And yet it's obvious that they were not walking in it as they continued to search for something else to give them eternal life. When's the last time you talked about it? I think it's something that we probably should talk about more. Uh, together, that's something that we should revel in and, and, and think about and, and consider and contemplate more often, eternal life. And this is John's own stated purpose for writing. If you flip just a couple pages to the right to First John chapter five, we looked at this uh, the very first week of our series, John 5, uh, 1 John 5 verse 13. He tells us why he's writing. I write these things to you, "...who believe in the name of the Son of God, that you may know that you have eternal life." This is the purpose for which John is writing. Not that only the people would hear and see and believe in Jesus and have eternal life, but he's writing with purpose so that they would have assurance and know that they have eternal life. This is why John's writing, and it's a good reason to write. For this truly, what he is writing to us about, is the remedy of our soul. It is the very thing that we need, is it not? Is that not why the world is searching for that which will give them eternal life, help them live forever? And if not forever, if we've given up on that dream, at least a little bit longer. How, much long, how many bionic parts can I get? How many different Uh, things can I do to prolong this life? And yet, church, here we are. We fall prey to it as well. And what is being offered to us in Christ, what John is writing to us about here, is exactly the thing that we know that we need, which is eternal life. Why do we know that we need it? Well, we're confronted with the absence of it in our physical bodies every day. I had a birthday just this last week and a buddy reached out to me and he's a little bit older than me and he was giving me a hard time and uh, he said, let me ask you a question. Uh, do you wake up in pain yet? Uh, because I do and I'm, I am convinced that's what means you are getting old and some of you can attest. Some of you... Uh, are living in the twilight of your years, and in that you come to a place where you can truly look at your life and say, "I, I think I can see the end better than I can see the beginning. And in that, in the reality of what Ecclesiastes talks about with us as we grow and our backs begin to stoop and our feet begin to shuffle, it is important for us to know as believers that the hope that we are hoping in and hoping for is not the kind of hope that Disney cartoons tell us where we are somehow wishing upon a star, but it is a confident assurance. And this is why John writes, so that we may know that we have eternal life. This, the remedy for our soul, goes all the way back to the garden, doesn't it? Look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17. Not only do we know that we need this because we deal with the Disintegration of our flesh on a daily basis. But we also know this because it is embedded in our own DNA, where it goes all the way back to our original parents in the Garden of Eden. Look at Genesis chapter 2, verses 15 through 17, and what it says. It says, The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it, what does it say? You shall surely die. Now, think about the knowledge that you have about the Bible about what took place in Genesis, and let me ask you a very basic question. Did Adam eventually eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil? Yes, okay, well done. Good job on this pop quiz so far. Okay, second question, when he ate of it, did he drop dead on the spot? You, you're, you're finding the dilemma already, right? It's, it's like, yes, but not yes. Yes and no, right? Adam did not drop dead physically in that moment, but he did drop dead spiritually in that moment. And the decay of death began to sit in his physical body. So that, though Adam was made and designed to live forever, death would eventually come. Look at Genesis 3. It says, Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Did God say that? No, it's not what God said. And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. According to what we just read, God didn't say that either, but that's another sermon for another day. But the serpent said to the woman, You'll not surely die, And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to the man and said, where are you? And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden. I was afraid because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, the woman who you gave I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. Then listen to this. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This small phrase, and he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel is what theologians call the Proto-Evangelion, the first gospel. The first gospel. What does gospel mean? Gospel means good news. In the midst of tragedy, God himself speaks a better word, good news, into this situation and points to a seed that will come from the woman who, as we will say, will crush the serpent's head. You see, in Genesis 3, the expectation was an immediate physical death. That's what they even believed would happen and it's what the enemy played on saying you'll not surely die speaking of a physical death not revealing the whole truth that what would happen was a true spiritual death a spiritual death that would not only affect adam and eve but would affect all of the children that would come from them and so the expectation was an immediate physical death, but that's not what happened. Instead, an immediate spiritual death took place such that you and I can be said, and our children can be said, and all those who came before us, and all those who came after us can be said to be born by nature as children of wrath, dead in our trespasses and sin, in Adam, all of us having sinned and rebelled against God. And so even though the expectation was an immediate physical death in God's grace, in His mercy, Adam and Eve did not immediately physically die, but rather died spiritually. And the effect of the spiritual death of sin began to work on their physical bodies slowly, breaking them down until at last in the flesh they would one day die. And they did. And they returned to the dust from which they came. That seed of sin and death has been passed from Adam to all of his progeny. Hello, that's us. The natural consequence of his sin passed from generation to generation. Spiritual and physical death and eternal separation from the love of God Able, only after death, to know God in His wrath rather than in His love. This is what we call depraved, or what we talk about when we say the word depravity. We are, apart from Christ, as bad off as we possibly could be. This does not mean that we are as evil as we could be. We can see from the testimony of Scripture and the witness of history that God is actively restraining evil in the world. If He did not restrain evil in the world, and if we were abandoned to our carnal lusts, then we would be as evil as we could be. But rather, God allows from time to time the evil that is within us to be revealed through some unrestraint in our fellow image bearers in a way that should remind us of the evil that is within us that He is actively restraining and where we would be if He did not. We are totally depraved and apart from a mediator in that depraved state, hear me. If we were left there just as the great, 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 grandchildren of Adam, dead in our trespasses and sin, by nature children of wrath, if we were left there without a mediator, then we would be totally and utterly lost and hopeless we needed someone we needed someone who could represent us we needed someone who not only could represent us but actually accomplish the perfection that was needed to appease the wrath of God. We needed someone who could go between God and man and somehow span the rift and chasm of separation because of the disparity between God's absolute holiness and our absolute depravity and sin. We needed somebody who could bridge that gap, who could somehow reach into both of those places and provide a way for them to be brought together. Church, hear me today. Jesus Christ came to be that mediator. He came to bridge that gap, that go-between. He came to defeat sin and death and to give eternal life to give it not to provide a way in which it could be earned but to give it he came to give eternal life to all those who would believe in him and this is what john wants his readers and his hearers not just to see and hear but to actually receive and experience The gift of eternal life which is in Jesus Christ our Lord. And for John this eternal life is not merely something to be experienced after death. But if you read John's gospel, you read John's uh, 1 John, 2 John, 3 John, if you read Revelation, you begin to get an understanding that when John's talking about eternal life, he's not talking about something that begins after death. He's talking about something that begins the moment, the very moment that God grants faith to someone in their heart to believe in Jesus Christ he's saying that that even as the the insidiousness of death set in the mortal flesh, what became the mortal flesh of Adam after sin, in that very moment, in the same way that life returns and there is an undoing of all that sin has done. And so for John, this eternal life is not merely something to be experienced after death, but rather it is a present reality for all who come to faith in Jesus, which means it is something that John is calling us to live in and walk in now. To walk in eternal life now. The remedy you see works in reverse to the disease Sin created an immediate spiritual death and a resulting physical one. Jesus brings an immediate spiritual life which will culminate in a resurrection and a real, eternal, physical life. If you didn't know that, surprise! As Christians, part of what we believe is that we will actually physically, eternally live forever. That's kind of why we're here. Amen. Now listen to me. And hear me very closely. Who cares? Who really gives a flying flip? How often You have seen or heard that there is eternal life in Jesus if you have never tasted or experienced it. Maybe your whole life people have been telling you Jesus gives eternal life. But who cares how many times you have heard that if you yourself have not tasted it and experienced it. You have not come to trust in Jesus and the eternal life that he offers to you. And so this has always been John's aim because it was the purpose of Jesus to bring eternal life. And I want to show that to you quickly this morning. First of all, I want you to go and actually see in John's gospel And I told you uh, over the last couple of weeks, we're going to spend a lot of time in John's gospel because most of what John is writing about in 1 John is expounding on what he had already written in his own gospel. And so go, go to John chapter 20, verse 31, and in his own gospel account, John, again, as he did in 1 John, towards the end of that letter, here in this gospel account, he tells us the purpose for why he's writing. In John 20, verse 31, he says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in His name. In some translations, it will literally say that you may have eternal life. This is what John's whole life has become about, is proclaiming the eternal life that is in Jesus Christ. And so he writes his gospel account so that you may know about Jesus and believe in Jesus and have eternal life. But then he writes 1 John so that you might know that you have eternal life because you have believed in Christ for eternal life. This is why John is writing. And if you read John's Gospel, you see this coming out again and again. Now, I will make two assertions here. One, I will say, this is what John's life became about. And we can see it in his writing. But I also say, the reason that this became what John's whole life became about is because this is what Jesus was about. And John is picking up the message ...from Jesus himself, that Jesus himself proclaimed about himself. Look at John 1, verse 4. We're going to look just quickly at several passages... uh, ...beginning at chapter 1 and kind of going incrementally... ...through the gospel into the middle of the book. John 1, verse 4, uh, beginning in verse 1, we'll read through verse uh, 5. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God... All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. What does it say in verse 4? In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. That's the intro to John's gospel, and already from the beginning, even as in 1 John, he's speaking of the life that is contained and offered in Christ Jesus. And then we move forward in John's gospel and we go to John chapter 3. A familiar passage, or at least within it is contained a familiar verse, John 3.16, which we'll get to in just a moment. But I want to set the stage here for you for just a minute. In John 3 we see Nicodemus, who is a Pharisee of Pharisees. He's a ruler uh, of the Jewish people, one who understands and keeps the law of God to the best of his ability. And we see him come under cover of night, uh, presumably not wanting to be seen coming to Jesus. But obviously he has come to to, uh, begin to see who Jesus is and he comes to him as a teacher. And in John 3 we see this interaction uh, between Jesus and Nicodemus. And Jesus begins to give to Nicodemus Great truths that are central to the doctrines of Christianity. And so we see in John 3 verse 3 something that Jesus says to Nicodemus, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. What is Jesus saying? He's saying that there must be new life. That the life that Nicodemus has naturally that was given to him by the birthing of of his life from his mother is not enough. There must be new life that comes. He must be born again. And then as Jesus continues to speak to Nicodemus in John 3.15, he says, uh, in fact, going back, he, he talks about Moses' As a Pharisee, Nicodemus knows this story, that there was a time in the wilderness when the people were grumbling against God and God sent a serpent in uh, to come and bite them. And as it would bit them, people began to get sick and die. They were dying all over the place. Uh, They cry out to Moses, what's going to happen? Moses cries out to God. God tells Moses to craft a bronze serpent and to lift it up on a pole and put it before the people and send out, listen to me, a gospel message, a message of good news that everyone who has been bitten by the snake, if they will turn and look at the very thing which has bitten them, uh, they will be saved. Now there's so much there that I wish I could unpack this morning very quickly. Let's think about this. Jesus goes to the cross. Our sin is placed on Him. In such a way that he literally becomes the very thing that has bit us. And the gospel message goes out to us who have been bit to look upon him and be saved. Alright, there's so much there. Don't have time to get into it. But it's really stinking awesome. Okay, so I encourage you to go back. Okay, so Jesus is talking about this. In verse 14, he says, And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up, verse 15, that whoever believes in Him may have what? Eternal life. So that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. Period. Verse 16, we know it, right? What does it say? For, why, why? The question is there, why? For God so loved the world. It's not a father who is angry and a son who is happy and convincing the father to be happy. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have, what? Eternal life. This is the cardinal truth Of the Christian message. Not perish. But have eternal life. Still in chapter 3 verse 36. Whoever believes in the son. Has eternal life. Hear how John makes this transition. And he starts talking about something. That is present. He starts talking about something. That is already active. He doesn't say will have. He says. Whoever believes. Has eternal life. Whoever does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God remains on him. And what is the obedience that is required by God, John chapter 6, to believe in the one whom he sent. John chapter 5, uh, excuse me, John 4, just going to the next uh, chapter again, this beautiful thing. Uh, picture of Jesus again having relationship with another person this time it's the woman at the well the Samaritan woman at the well and here he offers her something chapter 4 verse 14 what does it say he's talking about a, a, a water that he can give and he says but whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again the water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water. What does it say? Welling up to eternal life. John chapter 5. Again, another beautiful uh, uh, scene is set. There is a man at the pool who has been sick and ill an invalid for 38 years. And there was a, a hope that as invalids would come and sit beside this pool, they thought that from time to time God would send an angel to disturb the waters. And if, if you saw the water's tremor, that it must mean an angel touched it and whoever could jump into the water first would be healed. And so people spent their entire lives living, lying around this pool jockeying for position to jump in and hopefully be healed. We see Jesus come and come to this man and actually heal him. But because it was the Sabbath day, people begin to grumble against Jesus. And so as Jesus answers these people who are grumbling against him, if you look in John 5 verse 24, He says to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life. He does not come into judgment, but has passed from death to life. Do you hear? This is what Jesus has come to do. If you keep reading through John's Gospel, chapter 6, chapter 7, chapter 8, All the way through chapter 12, you'll see this coming again and again. Jesus Himself, by His own words, speaking of the eternal life that is His to give to whoever believes in Him. And then we come again to Jesus' high priestly prayer in John 17. And if you look in John 17, verses 1 through 5. It says, when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven. And he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. Since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. Listen to this, verse 3. And this is eternal life. That they would know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth. Listen to what Jesus says. Having accomplished the work that you gave me to do, and now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. And then Jesus goes. He is betrayed. He is taken to Golgotha. He is nailed to a tree and lifted up, even as he talked about in John chapter 3. And there on the cross in John 19, verse 30, Jesus says something very important. Verse 28, we'll start there. After this, Jesus, knowing that all was now finished, said to fulfill the scripture, I thirst. A jar full of sour wine stood there, so they put on a sponge full of the sour wine, a hyssop branch, and held it to his mouth. When Jesus had received the sour wine, he said... To tell us, die. It is finished, paid in full. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. And he died. He died the death that Adam deserved to die the moment he partook of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. He died the death that you and I deserve every day because of our sin and rebellion against God. Church, that which was from the beginning, the Son of God, Incarnated and in the flesh, born of the Virgin, fully God and fully man. He lived a perfect life as a substitute in our place. He died the death of a substitute for us and in our place. For the Bible says, without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission of sin. And he was buried in submission to the Spirit for us and in our place. But Jesus Christ did not only die, he was not only buried, but he was raised to eternal life. By the same spirit that he was buried in submission to. And Paul would say in Romans chapter 8 that the same spirit that raised Jesus Christ from the dead now lives and dwells in our mortal bodies as we come to faith in Jesus Christ. The very life that left Adam in that moment of sin enters us as we come to faith in Jesus Christ and we are raised from spiritual death to spiritual life in a moment so that we can from that moment walk in eternal life every single day. And Jesus did all this not just to help us see how we could do it and try to save ourselves, we cannot. But rather through the sacrifice of His death and the victory of His resurrection, He has defeated sin and death for us and rescued us completely and without the need for help from anyone. You see, Jesus has actually accomplished something for us. And not by mere happenstance. It wasn't, Jesus did all these things, and then someone stood back, grabbed their Old Testament, opened it up, started going through and going, oh my goodness, check, 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 check. He did it. No. It wasn't happenstance. It was purposeful. It was intentional. What did Jesus say right there in his high priestly prayer in John 17? What did he say? Look at it again. I glorified you on earth, verse 4, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. Jesus is living with purpose, on purpose, with intention, doing only that which the Father had told him to do. John 15 and 17, the rest of it, Jesus actually specifically says, I do only that which the Father has told me to do. He didn't need help. It wasn't happenstance. It wasn't, oh, look, everything Jesus did just happens to check all the marks. Hooray. No, Everything that needed to be done, he did with purpose, with intention, doing only and all and everything that the Father told him because he was accomplishing a specific task, the redemption of all God's people, those he had chosen for his own before the foundation of the world, a work totally done and completely by him for all time, once and for all, for all who believe in Him and call upon His name. Hallelujah! Praise God! There is someone. I don't have to do it on my own. I don't have to try and bridge that gap. I don't have to try and find a way to get myself to God. Jesus made a way for me through his own work. And he accomplished everything that was necessary. Hallelujah. What a Savior. Church, for those of us who have come to Christ in faith, believing and trusting in Him to save us from the wrath of God toward our sin because of our rebellion against Him, eternal life is what we have received in the redemptive exchange of our sin for Christ's righteousness. And we have, hear me, a confident, with faith, a confident assurance and expectation that what awaits us is eternal life rather than eternal death and punishment. And John seems to believe that we can know that not as a reality that will come, but we can know that because it is a reality that already is and we are called to walk in that reality day by day. And so John is still concerned with eternal life. And now he doesn't just want you to have it, he wants you to know that you do. And that eternal life is not something that begins after death, but rather at the very moment you taste of the fruit of the tree of life. Remember that after Adam and Eve sinned, he sent them out of the garden and he placed cherubim at the entrance to the garden with flaming swords to keep them from the tree of life. Why? Why would God keep them from the tree of life? Well, God himself says, else they eat of it and live forever. But what kind of living forever was he talking about? Living forever in their sin, eternally separated from God's love and only able to receive his wrath. What do we call that? We call that hell. And instead, what happens at the cross? What happens at the cross is that the cross has become that tree of life for us, and Jesus, the fruit that hangs upon that tree. And so, when John says, I proclaim to you the eternal life, what he's doing is he is inviting each and every one of us to taste of that fruit and see that he, Jesus, is good. To taste and see that he is good and eat so that you may be transferred from death unto life. And as we move into the rest of 1 John, what we will see is that John is saying that that eternal life will become evident as you place your trust and hope and faith in Jesus. And John is going to begin to show us what that life found in faith in Christ will and should look like as we walk with Him. And so John begins this word to the New Testament church. To those that have believed in Jesus already, or to those who have not yet believed but have begun to hear about Jesus, perhaps told by friends and relatives that have already tasted of Jesus and the eternal life that He offers, and they've told them about it because they love them and they want them to taste eternal life here and now, and so John opens First John and he says, That which was from the beginning, that which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life, the life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard, we proclaim also to you, so that you too may have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father, and with His Son, who is that life, Jesus Christ. And we are writing these things, so that our joy may be complete. We proclaim eternal life, and it can only be found in Jesus. Would you stand with me as we pray this morning? Father, thank you for eternal life. Thank you for the promise that is for all those who believe that in Christ what is offered to us is not only the forgiveness of our sin, but because of the forgiveness of our sin, you have offered us eternal life. For those of us who believe, God, I pray that you would continue to sanctify us more so that we can more fully realize that eternal life here and now and walk in it. And God, for those who are here today who perhaps have heard of this eternal life but never trusted you for it, may you by your spirit now give them faith to trust and believe that the work which your son Jesus has accomplished, truly was accomplished, and it was done for them. Only you, God, can give faith. Would you do it now? In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.